0: So a couple of weeks ago, we went camping right before all this, went up to Lost Creek Lake, and Myron, my seven-year-old, is out playing, and he makes a friend, and he brings this friend over and introduces us to him, and he looks like he's seven or eight as well. And he's talking a bit, and I said, well, where do you live? He said, um, we live in Portland, but we just moved there. I said, Oh. And this is still during the riots and the 100 days of protests and all that. I said, oh, well, that's interesting. I said, where'd you move from? He said, oh, we moved from New York City. And so I said, oh, that's called jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> he just looked at me and went, what? <laughs> so we went back to his dad and was like, dad, this guy said this, all right? So I have that tendency, Hebrews has that tendency that it'll put things out there, and if you're not paying attention, it'll just go right over your head. So this is one of those chapters that I just titled the whole thing, Pay Attention. You gotta pay attention to this one because stuff comes really fast, and I could have spent probably three or four Wednesday nights just trying to get to all those. I'm gonna, I am gonna. I got one night to do it, so we're gonna go through it. So pay attention. Verse one. Hebrews 2 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, it's the Old Testament according to his will. So of course, Hebrews is Jesus is better. And this is Jesus is better than angels. And now he's into a warning. And it says, pay attention, number one, so you don't drift. Pay attention, so you don't drift. I'm not a seafaring person. I've Spent a little bit of time close to the you know, ocean. But I can remember one time that really shocked me about the, the pay attention or you drift. I was a missionary in Vanuatu, which is the South Pacific. Um, the Nivans are incredible people. I happened to sit next to on a plane ride. The head of the UN, she was in charge of all of the South Pacific. And so I just grilled her on like, what about, you know, you have an opportunity like that. Let's get some information. And so I asked her this. I said, who are the nicest people you've ever come across? And she didn't know I was from Vanuatu. We were in New Caledonia, flying from New Caledonia. And she said, oh, by far, the Nevans. Relationally, they have a massive gift. They're just kind people. Um, But they're not craftsmen. That is not their gift, right? They'd much rather have a story with you then build something, all right? So we get in this canoe that was built by knee vans, and before we even got in it, they're like apologizing to me. We're sorry about this thing, you know? If you want a really good canoe, you get it from the Solomon Islands, not from here, but this is from here, so it's as good as we got. So I'm like, oh, okay. And we we're gonna go across, I was only there, I'd only been there for two weeks, and we're gonna go across to this place called Ice Island, which was quite a ways away. I think it took us 45, an hour to, to row this thing across, and so we get in, we row across, we're gonna go pig hunting. We went pig hunting, didn't get anything. So now we're coming back, and as we're coming back, we're in this really deep blue channel where you can't see, the, it's just deep. And the water there is crystal clear. And as we're paddling, I'm still learning the language, but one of the knee says, ooh, Hemi, one place blow shark. I heard the word shark. <laughs> and I'm like, um, does this mean this is where the sharks are at? And they're like, yes. I had my hands on the side. I'm like, okay, well... All right, that's good to hear. It wasn't two minutes later, the outrigger broke off. So now we're in a very unstable canoe in the place where the sharks live, And we're just bobbing there. And I can hear this conversation in Bishlama about who's gonna jump in the water and fix the outrigger. And you can see him, no, 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 no. You, no, no, I don't know how to fix it. I'm like, I'm glad you don't speak Bishlama right now because I'm just acting like, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) Except for someone needs to get in there and fix that, right? So finally, this guy named James, who was actually from the Solomon Islands, so that's why he got picked. Like, you guys build good canoes. Get out there and fix it. He's like, all right, fine. So he jumps in. And he's in there and he's out there and we're all just watching the water like, dude, I hope you don't get eaten right now. So he fixes the outrigger. We get back in, it was probably 30 minutes. When we looked up, we were so far gone from where we were at before. Like we stopped paying attention for just a half an hour and we had drifted maybe a mile and a half off of course. That's what it's saying right here. Pay attention, pay attention. That's the key. Right? When we were paying attention and we were paddling, man, we were making good speed. But when we stopped, when we got our eyes off our prize and got it onto the storm and the sharks, oh, we drifted really, really fast and far. It's hard to pay attention today. Because there is this invention. It's called the internet. It's called iPhones. That, man, do they ever vie for your attention. It used to be in the morning, you didn't wake up and look at this little thing. You woke up in the morning and usually you read your Bible. Maybe you prayed. And maybe you journaled. But now very few people do that. And it's very easy now to drift. So what do we do? Jesus has this parable in John 15 where he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whatever vine... Abides in me, bears fruit, more fruit, much fruit. I think the key is abiding. And you read people and they get all esoteric on it and, you know, hyper spiritual. I'm real simple. I think this right here is the body of Christ. That you abide by just sticking with other believers, that they're the, they're the ones that help you pay attention. They're the ones that will ask you the questions like, man, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? What's happening? That's abiding to me. It's real simple. You stay around believers that are on course and have their eyes on the prize. That's what you do. And that's how abiding this. So pay attention. Pay attention, or you're gonna drift. Pay attention to scripture. So this guy is saying, hey, Jesus is better than angels in the Old Testament, but here's what he says about the Old Testament it's reliable. I love the Old Testament. I know some people are New Testament people. I'm a Bible person. I love the Old Testament. To me, it sets the stage for the New Testament. And if you read the Old Testament, there's some incredible things in there. Like over and over, it talks about the hoary frost of the heavens. This is 3,500 years ago. Like that was mocked. Then there's no water up there. Guess what we found? Water in the heavens. There's a lot of water in the heavens, in fact. Most asteroids are big clumps of rock and water, ice. Like, whoa, wow, they knew that a long time ago. There's this book called None of These Diseases where this doctor just went and looked at the law, the sanitary parts of the law, like don't eat this, don't do that, bury your poop, you know, that's literally a law. Like, that was revolutionary 3,500 years ago. And he just, he, he wrote out a book on it. His name is Dr. McMillan. And he just said, the practice that they had 3,500 years ago are modern day. They're incredible. Modern day practices. That if people practice this, they would get none of these diseases. It's God's promise. If you keep my law, you'll get none of the diseases that the Egyptians were getting. And the Egyptians, you read some of their stuff from 3,500 years ago, and it was, hey, if your baby is teething, take some donkey dung and pigeon poop and put it on the teeth. Like literally, that's what they were doing. So it's a radical, radical departure, it's amazing. Babies were circumcised on the eighth day. Do you know that babies, when they're born, they don't have vitamin K, that ability to to clot the blood, but they get to 100% of vitamin K at eight days. Now how in the world did the Bible know that? 3,500 years ago, right? Was it trial and error? Man, these babies keep dying. No, it's the fingerprint of God because he knows. The Old Testament is reliable, right? And then it says this about the Old Testament. It was really serious about sin. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, sacrifice, sacrifice, you might think sacrifice is barbaric, but this is what it was. It was God meeting people where they were at to bring them to him. That, that's what sacrifice was. And what it was was you have a bunch of slaves who are uneducated, just been released from a pagan nation called Egypt that was steeped in all this stuff. And it was a very graphic and expensive understanding about sin. That sin kills, literally. And it's expensive. It's expensive. You think taking a lamb down was, that that, that was your money. You took a lamb down and sacrificed it, when you've sinned. We are so far from that now, aren't we? Because no one deals with death like that anymore. We, We don't make our own meat anymore. We don't slaughter an animal, right? Very few people do. We go to Fred Meyer, we like it packaged in nice cellophane, cute blood sponge underneath so we don't see anything bad. That's what we like. But the Old Testament provided this picture for people over and over. Sin is bad, sin is bad. So it says, because of all that, verse three, don't neglect your salvation. Because of the Old Testament, because we have these pictures of how serious sin is, do you know how great your salvation is? Don't neglect this, and God has given signs and witnesses and gifts. Do you know that you have enough evidence to believe in Jesus. So I read atheists, cause I keep up on that. Richard Dawkins, whoever. Richard Dawkins says, if God wanted believers, he should have posted the 10 commandments on the moon. Then I would believe. That's not believing, do you know that? That's just facts then. There's no belief in that. And what God is actually after is faith. Hebrews 11 verse six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So God will give you enough evidence to either believe, but he won't give you so much evidence that it's no longer faith. And every encounter in our life, you can look at it as coincidence or evidence. You can. So I remember many, many years ago, 1996, I led a help, dual led a trip to Bay of the Angels, which is about 400 miles down on the Sea of Cortez side of Mexico. So I've got 24 high schoolers, and there are six leaders, 24 high schoolers, six of us, and we're driving these two vans, pulling trailers, when just, I don't know, 100 miles outside of Ensenada, the trailer breaks, and one of the tires just came off. So I go back there, and hey, you're the mechanical engineer, fix this. I'm like, I'm not a mechanic. I'm a mechanical engineer. It's very different. But anyways, we're like, oh, great. So I'm thinking, man, where in the world, 100 miles down Inside of Mexico, are we gonna find something like this? I look at the make of the trailer, made in Illinois. I'm like, oh, golly, could have been made in San Diego or something. Nope, Illinois. So we start making our way back. I took off the whole assembly. We've got it with us. We're making our way back. We're hitting these little, like, just tiny junkyards. And one guy tried to sell me the front end of a Mustang II, 1974. I knew it, because I had one of those. I'm like, I've seen that before. That's not for our trailer, thank you. So finally, about it must have been 4.50, we come into Ensenada. We go to a parts store. They're like, no way, you don't have anything like this. Do you have any idea of somebody that might have this? Ah, no way. Well, you could try the boat shop at the top of town. We pull into this boat shop, right as the guy is running the gate closed, right? We're right there at five, like, hey, 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 hey. We got this crazy contraption, do you have anything like this? He's like, well, we just got a brand new trailer in and a boat, maybe. We go over to this, it was still in there. It wasn't parked with the other boats. It was literally in his driveway. We walk around it. On the front of this boat trailer is bolted an assembly. Drum assembly, axle assembly, bearings, everything. We look at ours, we look at it. Identical. The best part was this, he sold it to us for 50 bucks. We would have paid a thousand at that point, right? Now, was that coincidence or is that God? Well, you can chalk it up to whatever you want. For me, that was God. And we talked about that with our kids. I've seen some of those kids years later and they'll be remember the trailer? Remember that? God was looking out for us. We've all been given enough evidence, signs, wonders for faith. It's, it's, are we paying attention? Are we paying attention? Do we take the time to journal them? And I journaled that down, that's why I still remember it. Remember the details, because it was so like, wow, God, you're in control. So don't, don't drift, pay attention. Number two, pay attention to human possibility. Look at this, verse five. For it was not to angels, remember the whole thing is Jesus is better than angels. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So fascinating, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, he's quoting the psalmist now, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Pay attention to human possibility. You, me, Bible says, we are made lower than the angels. Now, what does that mean? Well, to me, this is big theology. So if you could rewind the clock and be a guy that was writing the book of Hebrews, steeped in the Old Testament, you would know some things. And one of them is the the scheme, if you would, of the Old Testament, the spiritual world of the Old Testament. And there's this text, you can look it up if you want. It's Deuteronomy 32. And it's verses six through eight that are fascinating. Because it's the author of Deuteronomy, Moses, saying, hey, go ask your mom and dad. Ask them about the old days. And the old days in the Old Testament always speak of Genesis one through 11. And if you know Genesis, Genesis one through 11 is God dealing with the nations. And then Genesis 12 begins with God dealing with Israel and it's Israel from that point forward. So the old days are before Abraham. So ask your mom, ask your dad about the old days when God divided mankind. When were humans divided up into groups? Tower of Babel, when did that happen? Genesis 11, right before Genesis 12. Ask your mom and dad about that time. And it says that God made the borders of their people according to the sons of God, the Ah Elohim. But Yahweh took for his portion Jacob. They became his. Matt, what does that all mean? Here's what I believe it means. At the Tower of Babel... When people decided, we don't want to serve God. We're going to do it our way. Babel means gate of God. We're going to do it our own way. We're, we don't need God anymore. We're going to put our own minds together. We're going to do what we want. God said, fine, you can have it the way you want. I'm going to grab Abraham, which is the next chapter. He's going to be, his descendants are going to become my people. And I'm giving over these other people groups to other sons of gods, Benaiah Elohims. So I believe if you look at the Old Testament, you see that the god Chemosh was over the Moabites. And the god Marduk was over the Philistines. And you can go on and on with that. Baal was over the Canaanites. That those are representing real entities, the sons of God, the Ah Elohim. And these powers, and you read about Babylon, you read about the book of Daniel, when Michael the archangel comes and tries to get into Daniel as he's praying and fasting, There is some powerful being that will not let Gabriel in. And Michael has to come and do battle with that being so Gabriel can sneak in and go speak to Daniel and give him the message. And Gabriel says, I'm headed back to that war that's happening all around us right now. So we're a little bit lower than them these powerful beings, I believe to this day that we're ignorant of this, that still have territorial regions. And I think you see territorial problems in certain places because of those kind of entities that they're still there. And you read the New Testament and it picks this up over and over, doesn't it? Second Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, they're not fleshly. They're spiritual to the pulling down of strongholds. These demonic strongholds, or Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in spiritual wickedness in high places. That they're still there. We are just woefully ignorant of them. And they still exert their pressure and they still do their thing. And so we're lower than them, if you would. We're underneath them. Daniel is actually called In Daniel ten, Michael is called the angel that's over God's people. He is the son of God, if you would, that Benai Al Elohim, who has stewardship, obviously underneath God, stewardship of Israel, God's people. Okay, so we're lower than the angels, but here's the thing. It says this: You have crowned him. That's humans. This is speaking about you and me with glory and with honor. You have put everything in subjection under his feet. This is not speaking about Jesus yet. This is speaking about you and me. This is us. Our rightful place, Genesis 128 was, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. This is yours. I created it for you. I'm giving it to you. It's yours, take it, right? we were given this incredible thing. What do we do with it? Verse eight. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. That's a very nice way of saying humans blew it. It was given to them, put in subjection to them. They could have had dominion over it, but instead they believed the lie of a snake and the snake stole it from them. And that snake still usurps power over them today, right? We blew it. Don't we all sense that? Don't you sense in your own heart that there's more to you? There's more, the word glory in the Old Testament is kavod, there's more weight to you, more substance to you, but you just seem to hit a ceiling. Your own bad habits, your own stupid, stupid laziness. Like I could accomplish so much more if it wasn't for the internet or social media, or Netflix. I could be more. Like science says we only use 10% of our brain. Now that's debated now, but I think it's obvious in some people. (laughs) Like there's more. I had this story, I cut it out, it was years ago. This kid named Austin Green, 15 years old. He's out helping his grandpa work on a car. The car jack rolls, the car squishes his grandpa busts an eye socket out, busts a jaw, breaks multiple ribs, like breaks his kidneys and his pancreas and his hip, just crushes him. 15 year old skinny kid goes over right to the front of that car, grabs a hold of it and lifts it off his dad, his grandpa. Like no one knows how he did it. What was that? To me, it's a glimpse of the kavod, a glimpse of the honor. We see glimpses every once in a while, but mostly we're failures. Mostly we're less than we should. Mostly we see fighting and anger and junk, right? It's a bummer. We could be something, but we're not. We're not. It's not under our feet yet. So the writer is saying, God had this great plan that humans could be ruling over earth. And taking care of it, stewardship, beautiful, shalom, wonderful. But it didn't happen that way. Instead, we are failures and we've got cancer and death and fighting. And we exercise and we try to stay it off and we get our greens on, we do Pilates. But it all terminates in a casket for every one of us. Right? Bummer. But here's the good news. But, buts are very important in the Bible. He's turning a corner here. That's the way it is, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Incarnation. We see him. We have a lot of focus in Christianity on the cross and resurrection, and we should. They're huge, but we should never neglect the incarnation. If it was just about the cross and just about the resurrection, Jesus could have come fully formed like Adam was fully formed. He was an adult when when God made him. Could have came passion week and died. But that's not the way the story goes. He comes as a babe in Bethlehem, and Jesus lives out, a life the way a human should, fully empowered by God's spirit. That he is the example of human life. That he is the way Peter's gonna say, and Peter has said, that you and I are supposed to live. He's velvet steel, he's compassionate. He has the right word in the right situation. You know that right word? Like the one you remember at midnight, I should've said that. He says it in the right time, over and over and over again. The perfect human. And if that was it, Jesus would be very, very intimidating, would he not? You ever been around a really great person? They just make you feel small, right? Insignificant, stupid. You just say the wrong things. You're like, oh, golly, I should just keep my mouth shut, right? I was around professors. I'm like, I should teach kindergarten, man. I should not be teaching the Bible because they're just great. And you just, you feel like your smallness around them. Here's what the author does. It's brilliant. Verse 10. For it is fitting that he for whom and by all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder, the archagos, of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of a congregation, I will sing your praise. When you and I were singing these songs tonight, guess who sang with us? How cool is that? And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given to me. Never, never, never stop paying attention to Jesus Christ's suffering because here's what that means. Yeah, he's the perfect human, but on the other side, it's this. Jesus says, I know, I know. Parents, when your kids get hurt, they have two choices of where they can go, mom or dad. Where do they go? If they go to dad, we're gonna say, right? Dad, I hurt my head, I'm bleeding. We're gonna say, rub it out, son but I can see my skull, rub harder, son. But if they go to mom, what does mom say? I know, I know, it's empathy. Jesus has compassion, right? He's touched by our suffering. He understands what it is like to live this life and it makes him compassionate. But the goal, look at the goal of Jesus. To bring many sons, huios, many sons to glory. That word glory is so awesome. It's kavod, it means weight. It's what we know we've lost. It's what we know we could have been, what we should have been. There could be more to us. That's kavod, that's glory, that's weight, that's substance. We know we're all lightweights. His goal is that you and I get back to our glory. He wants to bring us back to an Eden-like glory, where we do have dominion, where we do live the life we're supposed to be living. That's his goal, and he is our captain. That's what ArK Ghost means. He's the captain, and it means this. Because he got the glory, we get the glory. It's like a team, right? You can be the worst player on a team, a bench warmer. If that team wins the state championship, What do you win? The state championship. It doesn't matter that you sat on the bench the whole time. You're on the team. That's the idea. He's the arcade ghost. Because he wins, we win. It's like David, when David is fighting Goliath, this this was the stakes. Goliath said this, send out your champion. If your champion wins, we become your slaves. If I win, your nation, Israel, becomes Philistine slaves. So in David's sling hung the destiny of a nation. If David loses, they all lose. If David wins, they all win. David wins, and the entire nation wins with him. That's with Jesus, the son of David. When he wins... We all win with him. The world wins. And we are on our track back to glory, back to the way that we are designed to live. That's good news. Don't forget his suffering, right? Don't forget death. Look at verse 14. Since therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Don't forget death. Pay attention to it. What did this little text just say? Who has the power of death? Do you see that? Verse 14, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. This little text has informed my theology a ton. Who has the power of death? The devil. First John 3.18 says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Jesus tells us to steal, to kill, to destroy. Do we see that stuff happening around us? Why does God get blamed? Stealing, killing, destroying. That the power of death is actually, in, it's satanic. Death is demonic. It's an enemy. That's what it is. In in Ezekiel 33, God is talking through Ezekiel the prophet, and he says this in verse 11. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Death isn't God's design. Life is God's design. God designed life, the devil's work. That's death. You know it. When you go to a funeral, you feel it, don't you? Like, this is not natural. I'm watching a video of something. That person should be here right now. This is not right, death is not right. It is an invader. It's why we try to outrun death our whole lives, right? We take vitamins and we get yearly checkups that can be very awkward because we're worried about death because we're trying to run from it. We eat kale. The only reason to eat kale, outrun death. And someone will always send me some recipe for kale and I always just send back, can you make kale taste like a Dairy Queen blizzard, okay? That's what I'm saying. If Dairy Queen blizzards were healthy, no one would eat kale, right? You'd be insane to eat kale then. If Dairy Queen blizzards gave you the exact same nutritional benefits as kale, who would choose kale? Only a psychopath, right? Because a Dairy Queen blizzard is better. That's my point. We eat kale because we know death's an enemy. We wanna get away from it. It says it enslaves us. We're afraid of it. If you think death is it, if that's your philosophy, that when you die and there's nothing more, you are enslaved to death. There's a little time in my life where I said this. I said, I just wish this life was all you lived and when you died, that was it. And my college roommate, Dwayne Londigan said, oh yeah, Matt, really? How would that work out for you? I said, it'd be awesome. I'd had fun all the time. He goes, then you better go at it right now. You better not rest one minute. You better get as much fun as you can. You better wake up early. You better stay up late. Fun, 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 fun. If you waste any time, you're wasting your life. Go have fun right now, Matt. I was like, dude, this is not fun. And you're nutty right now. <laughs> he goes, really think about it. You could never just sit. You'd always have to be fun and just be fun till it, it ran you ragged if this is all there is. It wouldn't work, Matt. And he was right like the understanding that this life is just chapter one and it builds into us something that echoes through eternity, allows me to just sit and enjoy life. I don't put this pressure and try to squeeze more of this life than it can ever give me. I don't get enslaved to it, because this is just the beginning. This is page one. When we turn the page, we come into a much better book. Man, we get freed. I, mean, I can finish my gardening. I don't have to go have fun. I can just finish my gardening. Life has shalom to it. You get set free. Then lastly, pay attention. And this is a thicky. Verse 16. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Pay attention to propitiation. The definition of the word propitiation, not the original Greek, but our English word propitiation is this. It's to appease wrath by the offering of a gift. Appease wrath by the offering of a gift. So the ESV translators decided to translate the Greek here, and we'll talk about that in a second, into this propitiation word, which means to appease Wrath, by the offering of a gift. So instantly I have to say, okay, who is God angry at? And what is the gift? Is the cross the gift? Because it's not really referred to as a gift in the Bible. Salvation is, the cross is a work. So, hmm. The pagans had an understanding of the world that said, the gods are angry at you. And in order to get on their good side, you need to give them something, right? It's pagan understanding. So this, this word puzzles me, propitiation. If we think about sacrifice, you have to go in your mind to the most important sacrifice in the Bible, in the Old Testament. That is the metric that, that echoes through all the Bible. So what is the most important Old Testament sacrifice? Passover. Passover. By far, it echoes through the Bible. Passover. When you think about Passover, was God angry at his people? No. Was God angry at the lamb? No. God was rescuing his people from an evil empire. That's what God was actually doing, an evil empire. Right. so there's been this debate, and I am never, I'm not gonna solve it. And It's on this word that, he, that, excuse me, there's a Hebrew root to it, but we won't even go there but the actual Greek word for propitiation, it's the word helaskathai. And when you start looking in that, if you want to, there are books, thick, small print books written on this one word and what it means. It's massive. So the word, I don't know if you have a different translation, but there are three main ways translators translate propitiation, expiate, It can be atonement, or ESV chose, propitiation. The reason is because there are three ways that word gets translated. It can mean to appease God, which is close to propitiation. It can mean to cleanse from sin, which is expiate. Um, Or it can mean to atone. Um, And atonement uh, is literally the name of the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant, if you know that from the Old Testament. That's another kind of word. So you come, to a text like this where they chose this word that I think, hmm, is that really it? Is the work of Jesus to appease an angry God by a a gift? Is that actually the right word here? Is that the right, right? is that what we're supposed to be thinking about God? God was angry at us and Christ's death was the gift that appeased God. Is that the right way to think about salvation? What's the need? Is it need an offended God who's angry? Is it a human creation that God loves that need to be rescued, kind of exodus? Is it a penalty that had to be paid, right? Is it, you almost see this in part of this, a triumph? So there's Luther who said that the cross was Christus victor. It was God demonstrating, God in the flesh, demonstrating his victorious reign over Satan. And this is huge, huge stuff that's debated. You can go into a rabbit hole down this. If you remember back to Matthew, I taught Matthew 27, which is the cross. And I said, what has happened is we've narrowed the cross down to this. Vicarious, which means for us, vicarious means on my behalf, vicarious, penal, penalty, substitutionary, you know, in place of me, atonement. That's what the cross has become. Now, I don't disagree with that. I just think the narrowing of it to that takes away a lot of biblical theology, that the cross did some other things for us. It rescued us. I think the cross expiated us, it cleanses us. That that it's, it's this, it's not, the cross is not a single instrument The cross is a symphony, and we will, through eternity, be finding more musical strains of what the cross accomplished on our behalf. I think it'll echo. The song of the cross will be sung through eternity, and we'll find new meaning from it over and over and over and over again. It's massive, bigger than just one of these things. So the author is trying to do something here, and he says something that I think brings it all together. He had to be made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Nowhere in scripture is a high priest ever referred to as merciful. Lots of other things for high priests, never merciful. Who in the Old Testament is called merciful? Exodus 34, verse six the first autobiographical statement that God makes about himself. I'm merciful. I'm merciful. This is, to me, God in the flesh, understanding our dilemma. It's Emmanuel. God came close to us. He chased after us like he did Adam, like he did Cain, like he did Abraham, like he did Jacob. It's God comes after us in his mercy, pursues us to redeem us and bring us out of bondage and trapped in an Egypt-like system to the devil who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's merciful. His mercy chases us down. It's a brilliant section. So I got one question for you. Are you paying attention? Pay attention. It's so easy today to not pay attention. Sin sometimes causes us to not pay attention. We hide from the gaze of God. But I think for most of us, it's not sin that causes us to neglect such a great salvation. It's like this. Jesus gives a parable in Luke chapter 14 about a man giving a great feast. He's giving a great feast. And he goes, hey, invite my buddies. So the servant goes to buddy number one. Hey, the Master wants you to come to a feast at his house. And the guy says, ah, you know, I can't make it. I got some new oxen. I'm gonna go try them out in a field. Got a new Dodge four by four. I wanna go four by I can't do it. The next guy, hey, um, the, the, the master's having a feast. He wants to invite you. Ah, man, I just got married, you know? Not got the wife, can't, she doesn't really like those things. Can't go, okay. Goes to the third guy. Hey, the master on the feast, come on over. Oh, I just bought a piece of land. You haven't checked it out yet. Really, you bought a piece of land and you didn't check it out? That seems like a dumb move. Right? You know the story. Are those bad things? No. I think often we get distracted by, by good things. None of them said, you know, I can't make it because I'm strung out on heroin right now. Got this meth problem, can't get there. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just a drunk, can't get it. No. In fact, those are the people he ends up inviting in. <laughs> it's good things. They're inebriated by good things and they neglect this invitation to feast. Look out for good things. Make sure they're in the right spot in your life because if good things get in the wrong spot, you actually become their slave. You're, they're, they're, they're there and you're serving them now. Well, I can't do it, why? Because I'm enslaved to this land or to this oxen or to my wife. <laughs> Be careful. Pay attention. We have a great salvation. We have a great king who has chased us down in his mercy and invites us, come. Let's talk. Come. Let's reason together. Come. And that invitation stands All the time. So pay attention. Jesus, may we be a people that pay attention. May we know by being in the body when we're drifting. Keep us anchored close, we pray. we love scripture because it's so reliable. May we know that, yes, we've lost some glory. (laughs) We're not what we could be, but you came on a mission to bring many sons, many daughters back to glory. That our future is a future that if we could get a glimpse of it, we would run so hard in this life toward that prize. And you've given it to us. May we never forget that you suffered to become the high priest that says, I know, I know. May we know that death is an invader. (laughs) It's a demonic invasion. It's not your plan. You are the author of life. And you've come to repair the breach and give us life everlasting by simple faith in your finished work on the cross. May we know that the cross is bigger than we can probably ever comprehend. That we will be amazed. We will say, holy, holy, holy like the angels around the throne for eternity as we see the work that you've done on our behalf. So may we pay attention, I pray. I ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.